0: Do box office numbers matter anymore? I'll be talking about my thoughts on that question from Josh Taylor, who's from Modern Mouse. I'll also be answering Theme Park Casual's question, why is comedy often not considered as deep or artful as drama or more serious stories are? Welcome to the Story Geek Show. I'm Jay Shear, co-writer of Death of a Bounty Hunter and Time Slingers. The full cast audiobook version of Death of a Bounty Hunter is now available on Audible, Audiobooks.com, Apple Books, and most places audiobooks are sold. I say it's a full cast audio version, which means it has 11, 11 different voice performers who are performing 14 different roles. So it's a fun full cast audiobook, almost like an audio drama, but much more in a book format. Support the show by picking a guy. Let me try that again. Support the show by picking up a copy. The links are in the description down below. So we got some good questions today, and I'm stumbling over my words already. And you know why? It's because I have been dealing with COVID long-haul symptoms for a while. In fact, I almost wasn't able to do this show, but I'm really grateful. I'm feeling a little bit better. I had to take two full days off. Couldn't work or anything. So that was a bummer. But now I'm back. And today, the first question comes from my buddy Josh Taylor over at Modern Mouse, who has a brand new video out, by the way, and it is about uh, one of my favorite, I think it would be my favorite cartoon of all time, um, Gravity Falls. He has a video about that out right now. Go go check out uh, Modern Mouse, Josh, um, his video uh, on Gravity Falls. Really good stuff. So the first topic today is one that he suggested that I talk about. I just put it, put it out there on Twitter. What should I talk about on tomorrow's show? He said, do box office numbers matter anymore? Really interesting question for a lot of reasons. So first, let's talk about who cares about box office numbers. We, we see box office numbers getting thrown around all the time. People love to throw box office numbers out there and, and, and talk about them and assume that they mean something. But who actually cares about box office numbers and what do box office numbers actually suggest or what do they actually mean? In other words, if we're going to look at box office numbers, what kind of information uh, or what kind of conclusions can we come to when we look at box office numbers? Um, And I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on box office numbers, but as somebody who has an MBA and somebody who also uh, is a storyteller, This is kind of a convergence of two subjects. How do things perform monetarily from a revenue and profitability perspective in terms of storytelling? And then also, why would storytellers care about that monetary exchange as it exists? So what do box office numbers suggest? The number one thing that box office numbers suggest is that the producers and distributors – made money <laughs> it just is kind of a conclusion that we can come to if there were really good box now i'm assuming that they're really good box office numbers if they're really bad box office numbers then we can assume that the pro- producers and distributors did not make any money and this is something that's really interesting to think about because uh when you think about making money at the movies what goes into that is how much did people the producers and the distributors how much did they spend on the money? And then how much did they make on the money? And then, of course, the difference between the two is their profitability or their loss. This is why you see a lot of more, more low-budget comedies or low-budget horror films that still get theatrical releases. Why is that the case? Because those are actually usually cheaper to produce. Depending on the way it's done, those are a lot easier to produce than big action films. Big action films usually cost a lot of money in today's world. And In order for them to make back up that money, they have to make a lot of money at the box office. So the first thing we can come to the conclusion is that if it's a really good box office take, producers and distributors probably made money, especially if you can look at the budget, see how much they (laughs) paid for the movie. And uh, if the box office did really, really well, then that's usually an indication that um, they made a lot of money and uh, the reverse is also true if the box office did not do well then chances are if you look at how much was spent on the movie the producers and distributors did not make any money now that may seem like come on that's so obvious why would you even bring that up as a topic but i think if you as you start to see like some of the things that people assume from box office numbers probably can't actually tell you that that's true so the number two thing that box office numbers suggest is that people recommended the movie to other people. So in today's marketplace it's a it's a there's a lot of attention on films. However, films can still not reach a very wide audience these days. You can see some, you know, some films that got really big budgets didn't really reach that big of an audience. Now, the reason for that is because some people saw those films and they didn't go tell other people to go see the film right so the most recent example of this is probably uh, Lightyear, which a lot of people have been talking about from a box office standpoint but one of the conclusions you can come to with Lightyear is did it make more money than it cost to produce then probably the producers and distributors made money now did it make did it did it uh, did it not perform as well as um, some people had maybe hoped it would perform well that probably means that people who saw the movie did not recommend it to as many other people. There are certain cultural phenomenons where a really small movie will go to a bunch of people. It's not because the movie was marketed more than other movies. It's because when people went and saw that film, they said, other people have got to go see this film. It's happening right now with Top Gun Maverick. A bunch of people have seen Top Gun Maverick, and they're going out and telling other people uh, to go see it. There could be an indication for a blockbuster like Top Gun Maverick that really explodes. It could also indicate that people are seeing the movie multiple times, not just once. That's also an indication that could be. So the number two thing the box office numbers suggest is that people either recommended the movie to other people or they didn't. So the more times that people recommended the movie to other people, probably the more people saw that movie. The number three thing that box office numbers suggest is that the peep, if it, if they're good, if there were good numbers, if the results were good, then the people involved in making that movie will likely get to make more movies. This is generally speaking, there is a there is a shared uh, understanding that if somebody made a movie that made a bunch of money, they will give more people, they'll give those same people more money to make subsequent films. Now, why is that? Because there's an assumption that success breeds future success. And so sometimes that's very true. If you look at uh, Tom Cruise, if you give the guy lots of money, he usually makes you lots of money. But it's not a 100% guarantee. If you look at uh, Tom Cruise and you look at his Mummy movie, that actually didn't do very well. So. You can't always come to the conclusion that someone's going to produce one film that makes a lot of money. That means that they will also produce future films that make a lot of money. Not always true, but in general, if my film has made a lot of money uh, and your film has underperformed or not really made very much money at all, chances are they'll they'll more likely give me more money to make another film. That's generally speaking the case. So those three things tend to be true about the box office and what the box office suggests. Producers and distributors make money money if the movies do really well. If they don't perform higher than their budget, then obviously they lost money. Uh, technically, if a movie's doing better, people probably recommended it to other people. If the movie isn't doing quite as well, then people probably did not recommend it. And the reviews suggest that as well, right? It's not just one-to-one, but also what people say in reviews. But I will tell you that for films that go really crazy viral, like Top Gun Maverick, that's people telling each, telling each other it's awesome. Because how many times have you seen a really tiny, small film that didn't have a large budget and wasn't marketed to a bunch of people, and the critics said it was amazing but you and I didn't see it and we didn't tell each other to see it or tell other people to see it. It doesn't really make a lot of money. So the box office stays low. So critics uh, are a sort of a leading indicator of what a movie might do, but not they're not as good as people telling other people about it. That word of mouth is a really powerful thing. And generally speaking, if a movie does really well at the box office, the people involved in that movie, the directors, the actors, the writers, etc., will get to make another film because funders studios producers will say hey look we gave them some money they they did great with it we should give them more money see if they can produce even more money for us now there tends to be a strong correlation between box office numbers uh and producer distributor revenue like we just talked about and probably profitability though that's even more complicated Um, but tends to be a correlation there. It tends to be a correlation between people recommending the movie to other people. And usually there's a correlation between people involved in those films get to make more movies. So I've said that like 300 different times and definitely in different ways, but box office numbers don't mean box office numbers do not mean that the movie was great. There's not a strong correlation. There's a, there's a small correlation between Uh, critics' responses, audience responses, and box office numbers. But you can't use box office numbers to claim that something was the best movie of the year. That does not tend to pan out, right? For one thing, there's a lot of smaller films that don't get large production budgets that we would all say objectively, this is a better film than the blockbuster. But... Blockbusters have other things in them that uh, people respond to. And so blockbusters tend to make more money. Blockbusters get marketed more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not really fair to say that because the movie made a bunch of money, it's a great movie. One of the highest grossing movies of all time is Avatar. A lot of critics said that Avatar was fantastic. But I think if you ask a lot of people like me, big fans of science fiction and fantasy and things like that, I didn't like Avatar at all. I I think Avatar is a very mediocre film. But what did Avatar have going for it? Well, it had going for it that it was one of the first uh uses of the new 3D technology that was heavily marketed and, and done um, really well from that standpoint, it was a visual feast for the eyes. It was one of those movies that you kind of had to see in the theater because you knew if you're going to watch it at home, you were not going to get the 3D experience the way you did in the theater. So there was a reason to go to a theater, which is obviously going to make that box office number jump. Whereas I might've waited for it to be in my, at my home, uh, my home theater. If, um, if if it hadn't been for the 3D component that I that I really wanted to to see. And it was a visual feast, right? It was a really visually fascinating movie. So there is a correlation between a movie being good and box office because people don't go to tend to see bad movies that um, you know, box office, they don't make a lot of money if if they're bad movies. But it doesn't mean that they're a great movie. That's where it gets to be. Well, you get into some subjectivity there. It's hard to back up that a film was great just by box office numbers alone. A lot of average movies have made a lot of money at the box office. So you really can't say that there's a strong correlation between a movie being great and the box office numbers. You can say that there's a correlation between it being good. That would be a more accurate thing to say, but it'd be hard to say that it would be great um a lot of great films like i said don't even make any money at all now who cares about so if you if you the reason i brought, bring that up is cuz if you're trying to make an argument that well the box office was great or the box office wasn't very good so you know well you can't really make a strong argument there so who cares who cares about box office numbers Well, the producers and the distributors care a lot because that's how they make money. So if they don't make any money off a movie, that could cost them millions of dollars. And then maybe their studios go out. There have been studios that have gone out of business because movies did so poorly. Uh, But producers and distributors that make a lot of money at the box office usually get to be rich and get to work on other projects and get to make more movies. So producers and distributors care very much about the box office. Obviously, movie theater owners care a lot about the box office too because that's their—that's where they're going to get their revenue from. They're not going to get any share of streaming profits that I know. They're only going to get the, the pro- share of the profits that comes out of the theater experience. They're, those people are going to care a lot. Now, all the other people involved in making the movies, whether it's directors, actors, the crew, the writers, whatever, they all care a little bit. I don't think they care as much um, from a standpoint of is is this validation for me necessarily because a lot of uh, actors do their best work in really small projects, for example, because just of what they're resonating with. A lot of writers will say that are smaller projects, directors too, will say some of their smaller projects were their favorite things um, that they've ever done, right? So they care a little bit about the box office, but they care about the box office mostly because it is an indicator of whether or not it will increase their chances of getting hired by other people down the road. Whether it's the same uh, production studio that uh, hired them in the past or a new production studio that says, well, they wrote a movie that earned tons of money, so maybe we should hire them for our next movie. Same thing if it was an actor, same thing if it was a director. That's why you would care about box office. Maybe you care a little bit about box office if you're involved in making the film because you want that film to reach more people. But again, some of the favorite projects that actors and writers and directors have ever worked on didn't go anywhere and didn't make a ton of box office. So again, you can't say that like, well, like all the people involved in the movie are just rooting for it to make lots and lots of money. Of course, they wanted to make money. They're not, they were involved in the project, and they that's good for them. But it, they might not be as concerned about it. They probably wish that more people had gotten to see some of their other films that didn't have the kind of budget or didn't have the kind of marketing budget that they could have necessarily seen. So uh, I will say that there's one group of people who seem to care a lot about the box office, and it actually kind of makes no sense, and that is... The general fans, even me, right? Like sometimes I'll comment on box office numbers and get into Twitter discussions with people about box office numbers. But this actually doesn't really matter. Box office has a very loose connection, as we talked about earlier, to film quality. Sure, there's some films that their quality is good. Other people tell each other to go see them. But like I gave in the example of uh in the example of Avatar, Avatar is not even a film that I like all that much. So if I if I were to say, well, it's the best making movie of all time I'd still say yeah but it, does. it doesn't mean it's a great film it doesn't mean that I have to like it so box office as a as a proxy for how good the film is it doesn't really make much sense arguing about uh, box office numbers and the quality of the films is dicey at best it's not the best possible argument that you could present and um, and by the way, that people will argue you about the box office related to political affiliation or things like that. Now, could you draw a conclusion that the movie was too woke or it was too right wing or it was too entered? You know, insert political uh, affiliation criteria in there. And yeah, I mean, it would be hard to correlate box office numbers to any political affiliation per se this is again what pundits are going to put out there it was too woke it was too right it was too whatever and that's why it didn't make any money um but again that is going to be very subjective it's going to be a difficult argument to make there are so many factors that go into whether a movie makes a lot of money or not that saying that it was some portion of the content that was related specifically to a political ideology or a spiritual ideology or whatever uh you know that's it's an interesting argument, but I'm not sure that it pertains to box office numbers. Now, granted, some people make movies just purely based on affiliation. There's a lot of Christian films out there, for example, based purely' it's just they're selling to Christians, they're not selling to many other people. and the whole, whole film is made up of that, and the box office will determine, you know, whether or not that was a successful marketing strategy. Um, but again, tying that back to whether or not that it's almost more like saying that the box office means did you reach the general audience did you reach your core audience did you, whatever that's a better correlation than just saying it had some sort of political affiliation or something along those lines, necessarily, people will argue all day long that I'm wrong about that. But I'm sorry, I don't see a way to, to have that art that um, that argument make a lot of sense, because you could have a fantastic film that does have woke ideologies or right-wing ideologies associated with it you can make a fantastic film and it performs amazing and then it's like well it had woke stuff in it though so what happened there it's just not an easy argument to make i don't think it's a good argument to make uh, but people try to do it all the time especially on twitter but i want to dig a little bit deeper into josh's question question because he's not asking me you know what's going on with box office and should we ask about box office? He's actually asking a very specific question. Do box do box office numbers matter anymore? So why would he ask anymore? Why would why would that be part of this equation? Well it's because the film industry is changing. The film industry business model has changed somewhat over the last 10 years, 15 years. So let's talk about why that is and why that business model changing has an impact on the box office. So first, let's talk quickly about how the history of how films were made and released and distributed. Generally speaking, in the last, for the last, you know, whatever it is, 50 years or something, ever since rentals were a thing, there was a theatrical release followed by a rental release and then and also a purchase release. So movie studios had uh, and then by the way movie studios would also sell movies to television channels so that the television channels could display that movie on their on their station. so you had like basically like four revenue sources for films the theatrical release which was going to be the box office, the rental, a marketplace the purchase marketplace and then also sometimes they distribute it through a television channel and the television channel would purchase the rights to display the film so you know four distinct ways that studios and producers could make money off of film now box office was a big deal because it was a primary source of revenue and also it was a predictor not a perfect predictor, but an indicator at least of potential rental revenue and purchase revenue and perhaps even uh, TV channel revenue as well. Now that was the old model, that's the way that uh, film was sort of distributed. Um, Now though, we have streaming. Now because of streaming services, box office revenue might actually matter more box office revenue might actually matter more now that we have streaming services than it did before now now granted what we are in is we are in a transition period because not everybody has streaming and people will still go rent movies and because streaming services are so fractured there's still you know I still go to Amazon video to rent movies that appear on a streaming service that I don't Own. So the movies, the movie industry right now is pretty fractured, but in general, um, now we have streaming services that changes the business model. What does that look like? So, why might box office revenue matter even more now than it does, um, than it did maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Well, let's first look at the revenue model of most streaming services. It resembles, it's a basically a subscription model. You could also compare it to a software as a service model because technically you're paying to access the software, which is the streaming service itself. So it's a subscription sort of SaaS model, subscription as a service, um, uh, software as a service, I should say, model, software as a service subscription. Um, and that means that they're gonna get monthly revenue from subscribers, right? They're gonna collect monthly revenue from subscribers who want to watch the content of that streaming service. Expenses come from producing and or buying content to put on the streaming service, okay? So basically, the revenue comes in from people paying monthly, and then the expenses come from producing and buying content to stream and maintaining maintaining the streaming service itself. So if we were to... to um, just run some numbers really quickly here. And I, these are fake numbers. I didn't go into Disney's real numbers, but let's just you take Disney Plus as an example. And of course they make a lot more than this, but let's just assume that uh, Disney Plus earns $1 million a year from its streaming customers. And let's say that their uh, expenses that they would pay employees with, their employee costs to host the service and keep it running are somewhere in the nature of $50 million. That gives them an extra $50 million to spend however they want to. They can just pocket that money or they can spend that money on new projects uh, because if they don't spend that money on new projects, either buying them or producing them themselves, then likely for many subscribers, they may say, you know what, I'm getting tired. There's nothing new on Disney Plus anymore, so I'm going to... Unsubscribe and then their subscriber base shrinks and then their revenue shrinks and then they may have to actually adjust their production or their purchases or their employee count, right? But movies that are getting theatrical releases are costing, you know, Avengers Endgame, which by the way is one of the most expensive films ever made, but it costs $350 million to make Avengers endgame 350 million dollars now the question is though how much how many of those movies could a streaming service like disney make after it's finished paying its employees after it's finished paying its server costs to have all of its developers to have this streaming service called disney plus does it have 350 million Dollars left over that it could make Avengers Endgame, and is that the only thing that's going to be released on that streaming service that year? I mean, I doubt it. So, here's where it gets a little bit more difficult, and this is why uh, there's so many uh, people analyzing whether or not uh, Netflix is doing well, for example, right? Because of subscriber base. So, let me just say this too uh, right now. These streaming services, because streaming services are relatively new in comparison to older business models, because they're relatively new, businesses will pay more in terms of marketing, in terms of production of content to get new subscribers. They'll pay more to get new subscribers because once you lock in the subscriber, there's a life uh, life cycle of revenue. So if I, if, you know, I'm, I've been a Disney Plus customer probably for five years. So because I'm a Disney Plus uh, subscriber for like five years or whatever, from whenever it came out, because I've been a subscriber that long, they get to take they get to know how much monthly revenue is coming from me. And if you subscribe to Disney Plus for a long period of time, or Hulu, or Netflix, or whatever then you, they get to accumulate that revenue over the course of time. They can predict that revenue is coming because you're a subscriber and they have a lifetime value um, that you're bringing to them. That's the advantage of a SaaS model. It's the advantage of a subscription model is that you have very predictable revenue patterns. But when you're trying to grow your subscription service and you realize that for every new customer, that's maybe a multi-year deal, you, and you need to get market share, you're willing to take some of your, you're willing to go into the red and spend more money to get more content on your service, especially because if you start out your service and it doesn't have much content, then why would people stay, stay subscribed? So we've been pretty used to streaming services, spending a lot of money to produce a lot of things so that they have a lot of new exciting things on their on their streaming services. But once they cap out and say, we've reached basically saturation, market saturation, which just means that there there's not going to be many a lot more high growth opportunities for us so if you compare netflix and disney plus for example netflix is a lot more has a lot more market share a lot more saturation across the globe than disney plus does disney plus is still in its growth phase it's still able to grow because people it's not like you can only buy one or the other you can buy both and so disney plus is saying you should also subscribe to disney plus And so because Disney Plus is newer, that growth is going faster and you see Netflix kind of planing out. They're reaching a little bit more of a mature area of their growth cycle. So what does that mean? That means that people are going to start to look at Netflix and they're going to start to say, well, we're not, you know, you can't run in the red anymore. You've got to be profitable now because you've reached the number of customers you're probably going to reach. Therefore, you should probably look at how much revenue you're making and how much expenses you have and you should probably not exceed that number because then you would be losing money so so we're gonna it's gonna be interesting to see if netflix actually you know puts the brakes on producing as many of their movies and of their films disney plus is still spending like crazy because they're trying to get more market share because they know that if they get more market share that will be future revenue for them okay Hopefully you're following along with that. If 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 not, leave me a comment, let me know, and I'll try to explain it better either in this show, if you're watching live or on a future show. But my point in saying all of that is, is that every single time a streaming service creates content, it has to ask itself, will this content mean that my current subscriber base will stay subscribed or will I be able to also You know, retain my customers because they stayed subscribed, or will I also get to sell to a new customer? And that's how the streaming service is going to manage whether or not it's worth spending the money on that content to produce it. The reason why box office revenue is still matters is because before it ever hits the streaming service, it can make a bunch of money because consumers will pay to access that product. Uh, over and above what it might be on the on the streaming so let me just explain what i mean by this if you can get me out of my house to the movie theater that's going to cost me what 15 bucks a ticket now depending on where in the country you are 12 to 15 bucks a ticket so you're going to make money off that ticket cost right whatever whatever the production company's share of that is they'll make that off the ticket cost um And I have to do a breakdown of what that looks like. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I'd have to go look at the actual numbers. I'm not that familiar with it. But on the Disney Plus side, I'm already paying for whatever it is. So if something new comes out, in other words, let me put it this way. (laughs) If Disney Plus were to produce nothing new in the month of August, they would make money off me because I'm a subscriber. If they produce something new in the month of August, not only am I not paying them anymore, but I'm also, um, I'm not paying them anymore, but they're spending money. So that's going to shrink their, it's going to shrink their, um, their, their profitability. But if they get me out of my house to the, to the theater, and then later on, put it on Disney Plus, now they're making money off the theater as well, right? So not only are they making money off the theater, but they're keeping me retained um, on my subscription. So the, the point I'm trying to make is that you're always going to see from a streaming service who's reached, especially if they're reaching their maturity, they're going to try to say we have this much money to spend on new content, whether we're buying it or whether we're, we're producing new content. We only have this much money to make. This is how much it costs us in expenses. This is how much revenue we have. The middle bucket there is profitability and what we're going to spend on new content that we put out. But if they say we're going to put it in the theatrical release first, that means that I will pay additional money beyond what I'm paying on the streaming service to go and pay for that movie. means they, they have the opportunity to create more revenue for themselves. Now, the way that this is going right now for Disney is that if you're not a Disney Plus subscriber, you may rent the film just like you used to back in the day by going to a Blockbuster or something. You may pay to rent the film through Amazon or whatever. But if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you're not paying for it. So here's where it gets tricky because if I like sports, for example, I haven't, I'm not sure I want to see Thor love and thunder in the theater. Definitely want to see it, but I could wait for it to come out on Disney plus. I don't pay any more. They just, they just retain me as a subscriber if I um, wait for Disney plus, but if I go to the theater, they make additional revenue off of me. Right. And so it supports the production of future films from Disney studios, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's way more advantageous to them. If I pay them for the ongoing (laughs) viewing of it on Disney Plus, but if I also get out of my house and I go see the film in the theater, which means that I think box office revenue is actually becoming even more important, even more important, because I'm not going to rent Thor Love and Thunder because I'm either going to get it on Disney Plus or I'm also going to go to the box office. So I think that uh, for me, the box office may be even more important in today's world than it was in the previous previous business model that we saw in Hollywood. Now you can disagree with that. You can point to other figures. Please do so in the comments. If you don't agree with me, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But the complete breakdown to answer Josh's question is that box office revenue isn't really a great way to prove whether or not a film is good or bad. You might be able to say that it's correlated with what general audiences want to see, but even then, it's such a complex thing. Maybe it wasn't marketed correctly. Maybe it wasn't sold correctly. You know, it, there's lots of different things you can argue. But I would say that it's hard to prove based on the box office that a film is good or bad. Box office revenue um, doesn't really, ma- does really matter. It does really matter if you want to see more money from if you want to see more films from the same person. In other words, if you want to see your favorite star, your favorite writer, your favorite director, if you want to see them do future projects, then you should go support their projects by going to the box office because it is highly likely that they will um, net out with more projects down the road if they were financially successful. And that's that's a bummer. That's just a bummer of the creative services is that some people who are amazing will not make very much money even if they produce something great and uh, unfortunately we won't get to see them as often as we would see somebody who made a bunch of money um, as being a part of a project now box office revenue as is my final conclusion may be more important than ever because of the rise of streaming services and how the business model is currently working so that's my take josh when you watch this video you'll have to let me know if you agree or if you have a slightly different take um and let's see, let's get into, uh, if you have any other uh, comments or questions, you can leave those, by the way, in the uh, in the comments here now. Um, I'm going to get into the second question that came from Theme Park Casual. Uh, my dog is wandering around the room, so <laughs> I don't know what exactly he's doing. But we're going to get into our second um, portion of this show, which is all about a, th- a question we got from Theme Park Casual. Thank you, Theme Park Casual, for... Um, the question. Uh, drama is is often seen as deep and artful, but comedy is not always seen as deep and artful. In fact, it's rarely seen as deep and artful. And why is that? From a storyteller's perspective, what's happening here? Why is uh, comedy not getting some of the, maybe the respect you might say, that uh, the drama gets? Um, you can see this, for example, because even you know, we've even seen some. What is it? The Golden Globes. who now have a comedy category, as if as if the comedies couldn't be nominated for Best Picture or need to be in a different kind of kind of uh, bracket altogether. So, what what is my take on that? Well, here is my take on that, and I have not studied this in any way, shape, or form. But this is just my off the cuff off the cuff thoughts on it. I think it is related specifically to the emotion that the story elicits in the audience. The emotion that the audience uh, is actually connecting to, right? So, what do I mean by this? And why would that have anything to do with comedy versus drama? And I want to also add to this mix some other genres. We'll add um, action to this mix as well, right? If you look at comedy and action, action thrillers, basically, those storytellers can elicit an emotional response. Without saying that anything is true or false about the world or coming to any conclusions about the human experience. Um, Now, you might argue that all comedy is some aspect of the human experience that's just funny, and the action is people, you know, doing things that are interesting to us. So it might, they might say something about the world. And I would, I would grant you that that's probably true. But if you look at comedy and action, you don't always need to elicit any other sort of emotional response. You can just make someone laugh or you can just excite them with a cool action sequence. So what I'm saying is that that doesn't mean that comedy or action doesn't have something to say. In fact, one of my favorite films of all time I think is very deep and that's Midnight in Paris. If you haven't seen Midnight in Paris, it's a fantastic film starring Owen Wilson. Um, and, and actually Tom Tom Hiddleston's in it too I, I didn't realize that until Tom Hiddleston became more famous because of Marvel but um, Midnight in Paris is a really really interesting film because although it's a comedy it has something fairly deep to say about our perceptions of time and what eras of time we would have liked to live through so Midnight in Paris is a really interesting film has some very deep things to say also hilarious in my opinion in many in many regards so it's not to say that Comedy and action can not also draw upon deep or artful emotions or themes. Um, But storytellers don't need to be deep in order to make someone laugh. Now, there may be a shared human experience that you draw on, but you can do fart jokes and it still is really funny. And that's a shared human experience, but it's not necessarily a deep shared human experience. Action movies don't need to be deep in order to excite us or have us worry about the characters who are involved in them. They can excite us because the action sequence is just out of this world. Cool, right? Like, for example, I don't really feel very many emotions about the movie Avatar. Like, because I mentioned that earlier about box office. Uh, when we were talking about box office. I don't have a lot of emotions watching the movie um, Avatar. But there are some pretty thrilling sequences where I go, whoa, that's really cool. And it gets an emotional response from me. Now, the difference with drama is that I don't think that drama has that much luxury. In other words, there's not an easy way to do drama well. I think that in order for drama to work well, it has to rely on emotions that are more difficult to elicit from the audience. So I can make the audience laugh with a really cheesy fart joke, right? Like, it's easy for Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, or Dumb and Dumber... Uh, it's easy for those things to make you laugh. They can do. There's lots of ways that we think that that the shared human experience, in some ways, is almost ludicrous, and therefore you can put those things in the film. I laugh, right? It's it's it doesn't cost me a lot as an audience member to get drawn into that. I can just laugh. I mean, TikTok um, TikTok needs 10 seconds to elicit a laugh from me. It, it needs it, You can make someone laugh in a very short period of time. You can do an action sequence. You can literally see a person standing on a cliff edge and it will make you feel an emotion. Right. Um, You can also just take a picture of someone dramatically and make them feel an emotion, but it's harder because what do I know about that situation? Is there something more I need to know to get deeper into who that character is and why they might respond that way and why I might have an emotional response to them? It's harder. It's more difficult to elicit an emotion from the audience in that regard. So my take is basically that um, now why why would we consider, why is it more difficult for a really deep, good comedy to get the respect it deserves, or a good, really deep, emotional and emotionally impactful action film to get the respect it deserves, well, I think that though they just start to get lumped in with some of those cheaper ways, just meaning it's it's easier to elicit a response from the audience without going deep. So if you ever hear someone say like "was well, a cheap laugh" or or those, what does it mean? It means. A cheap laugh, getting a cheap laugh or getting a cheap emotional response from an action film, it doesn't mean that the action wasn't done well. It doesn't mean that the joke wasn't actually funny. It just means that you didn't have to take an audience member down a long uh, storytelling path to elicit the response you wanted to response from them, laughter or excitement or whatever. It was easier to do because you played upon something that was, you know, someone getting hit in the head with a volleyball can be hilarious, but it doesn't matter. I don't need to know the backstory of that character. I don't need to know like what happened in that character's life today. Um, if you just show me someone getting hit in the head with the volleyball, I'll probably laugh. I'll probably think that's really funny. So um, now if you were to what, what an like really deep thing would be is that you build up a character and now they're a character who is, Uh, really prideful and they have been putting other people down and you get them into a scenario where you make them look incredibly foolish. Well, that might be a really well-earned a well-earned, not, not so much a cheap, not so much a cheap um, laugh at that point. It may have been integral to the story, which I think, um, you know, like even, even uh, midnight in Paris plays with its characters in such a way where I think it's, it's not just cheap laughs. They're getting like they're getting like we laugh at that because we've seen that scenario sort of play out. And even though they might be, there might be cheap laughs that are included, it's this kind of more complex thing that is um eventually um realized. But I don't think that drama hasn't has as easy of a time. Like you can't just show me a 10-second clip and necessarily have it elicit the same emotions. If you show me a 10 second clip of someone crying, I don't immediately have any sort of empathy empathy toward them necessarily. Now, I'm not saying that that's always true because if you add additional context onto that 10 minute clip, you can elicit some of those responses. But a lot of time that's harder to do because uh, you need to draw me in by having a longer... Uh, a longer route to getting to why uh, I have the emotion as an audience. Um, Now, granted, uh, I think there is there are ways to get cheaper. um, Again, I don't mean cheaper by like less valuable, but I just mean cheaper by like it doesn't cost you as much to elicit the response in the audience. I think you can do that. For example, you can take something that people hold dear, right? Like a lot of people are really big fans of the country that they're in. And so if you show uh, a soldier who has a, a flag of their country in the background and he's kneeling and holding um, holding a kid that he just saved from a village. Just that picture alone could elicit response. Now, it, is that a cheaper uh, methodology? Yeah, because if I'm putting value on top of that thing just because I saw the flag so I know what army it is, I can kind of see the surroundings. I know what country it is. And then because I human beings saving one another, um, I'm going to say that's great. And I might cry or something because of it. But if all of a sudden, this is why drama, I think, can be harder. If all of a sudden I switch the flag out and I put the enemy flag as opposed to the flag that you believe in, the country that you believe in, and I put the enemy's flag in instead. Well, now suddenly i got a very different emotion from you, right? And then maybe I don't even want to watch that anymore. So now, a drama, we would say, okay, well, it's not enough to just show me the flag and show me the kid, and yeah, that's drama. But how did the person get to that to that point? What happened in their lives to get them there? I think I think in those cases, drama is um, trying to get, showcase something about the shared human experience that has to reveal more about what goes into the changes in the characters. That, um, that we would respond to emotionally. And so I think it's harder to get there. Again, both can do it. Both can do it. But I think that it's easier to get there with comedy and action and get the emotion than it is with drama. I think it's harder to get to the emotion with drama. It can be done in a cheaper way, meaning you expend less on it to get the audience to get that emotion. But I don't think that it's as common. And it doesn't mean that um, comedies can't also really break down a character and get them to a completely different place i think like i said i think midnight in paris does that really 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 well in fact i think midnight in paris was actually nominated for um, an oscar if i'm not mistaken so it can happen it just maybe is a lot more difficult for it to happen but we also, we also have a deal where we tend to lump, th- want to lump things together and categorize them. So a lot of times, well, this is an action movie. We lump that into the doesn't get Oscars. Here's a comedy we lump that into doesn't get Oscars. Oh, this is a drama. Well, that must mean it could maybe get an Oscar. And I don't think that that's necessarily fair. Um, and so, but it is something that the human nature, it is something we do uh, in human nature. That's That's kind of a bummer. So those are my takes, that's what I think about box office and how box office matters or doesn't matter. I'm sure you probably agree or disagree. That's my take on why comedies maybe aren't perceived as artful or deep as some other things in the future. Special thanks to Josh Taylor from Modern Mouse and special thanks to Theme Park Casual for giving me something to talk about this week but i'd like to hear your thoughts in the comments down below so please leave those for me if you need a summer book to read or an audio book to listen to i'd love for you to read or listen to death of a bounty hunter death of a bounty hunter is about a desperate sheriff who will do anything to save his daughter and a bounty hunter who realizes he can no longer run from the truth it's sort of like red dead redemption meets raiders of the lost ark but with badass female characters thrown in for good measure The audiobook version is a full cast audiobook with 11 voice performers playing 14 different roles. A link to deathofabountyhunter.com will be in the description. Please support the show by picking up a copy. If you have a topic or a question you'd like for me to cover, just like Josh Taylor from Modern Mouse or Theme Park Casual, they gave me the topics for today's show. Well, if you have a topic that you'd like to hear me talk about, please leave me a comment or shoot me an email at hi at reclamationsociety.com. Or the closer it is to storytelling, probably the better I will be at being able to address it. (laughs) just so you know in the future. Um, But new episodes of the Story Geek Show drop every week, both on YouTube and on your preferred podcast provider. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any new content. Thank you for watching. And I will talk to you on the next show. Bye.